Welcome to Query, where we provide simple answers to complex tech questions. My name is Serenity Caldwell, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hey, we're back. Another week, more questions. Yes. Yeah, so... uh... It's a, it's a fun week. If you lived in uh, if you live in North America, this week was the the great uh, eclipse. So hopefully you got out to uh, to see that. And if you're not in North America, I'm sure there'll be uh, lots of photos. Um, and uh, yeah, a real a real fun week if you're uh, into that sort of thing. So oh yeah, troll Instagram. It's great. So many so many cool photos. Yes. Hopefully you you weren't uh, overtaken by clouds. I know some people were. That's got to be. Sad. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. There's uh, there's another uh, eclipse in what like thirty years, something like that. Uh, yeah, it's the, not, yeah, not as long. Yeah, yeah there's some, there's some coming up, so they're around. Yeah, we're gonna jump right in. Uh, Scott had a great question, uh, and as soon as I read this, I was like, you know what? I'm actually not sure. So we we um, Serena, you did some homework on this. So Scott asked, how is the exercise ring calculated on the Apple Watch? My wife and I often get different results when we take a walk together. This is such a good question uh, because Apple uh, generally doesn't like to reveal, you know, the the magic sauce behind all of their various rings and exercise equipment. But uh, actually, they have a quite quite a detailed document uh, on the knowledge base KB diving, um, and uh, I've referred to it a number of times. For, for various questions on how the Apple Watch's sensors work. Uh, so let's, uh, let's take a step back before we talk about the exercise ring and just really quickly recap how the Apple Watch tracks exercise and heart rate in general. So the way that the Apple Watch tracks your heart rate and figures out you know what kind of exercise you're doing is because there are these little sensors on the back of the Apple Watch um, that you, it's basically an, uh, an oximeter. Um, and the science, let's see if I can pronounce this correctly, is photoplethysmography, uh, which essentially it means that the Apple Watch is using green light sensors, LED diodes, basically, and it's shining that LEDs, uh, shining those LEDs directly through the like top layers of your, your epidermis and your dermis. Um, of your skin so that it can figure out what's happening in your blood vessels. So when your heart pumps, blood goes through your blood vessels um, and there's, you know, little little uh, spaces as the, the red blood cells kind of move along, right? Uh, so as uh, the way that the sensor works is it's essentially bouncing green light off of those blood vessels constantly. And every time that uh, the blood flow in your wrist increases, it means that your heart's beating. And every time the blood flow in your wrist is decreasing, it's between beats. Uh, So the Apple Watch can basically use that measurement to figure out how many times your heart's beating each minute. And uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy when you think about the science behind it. Um, I wish I was actually better versed in the actual uh, physics and chemistry because I think it's really cool. I just don't think I describe it as well <laughs> as I could. <laughs> um, but yeah, so um, so that's how the Apple Watch detects your heart rate. Um, and when you set an exercise goal, right? When you when you say I'm going to work out, and you go into the workout app and you say I'm taking an outdoor walk, say with my my hypothetical wife and I are going on an outdoor walk. Um, and it, if we both push that outdoor walk button at the same time, 
the Apple Watch is going to start registering our heart rate many more times a minute. Normally, it tries to take a sensor reading about every 10 minutes. When you're doing an exercise in the workout app, it's going to be doing it continuously. Unless you've set, there is a, a feature that you can turn that off to save battery life. But okay. most people leave it on because it's useful to to actually uh, to, to make sure that you get the most accurate reading possible. So when you're doing this uh this workout, um, the Apple Watch is measuring your heart rate, um, and whether or not those minutes actually get counted as I am exercising minutes, that goes back to something that the Heart Association of America, uh, the the principle behind target heart rate. We'll link a chart in the show notes, uh, but essentially that breaks down to, depending on your age. Uh, there's a certain max heart rate, a.k.a. when you're working as hard as you possibly can go, your heart's probably going to hit a max of this number. Um, for healthy adults under the age of 30, that's something like 190, I believe, um, 190 to, to 210. Um, so obviously, you don't want to hit that max every single time that you're working out, but the higher you get close to that, the closer you get to that, so the closer you are to kind of a a nice median between your resting heart rate, the way that your heart rate beats normally, and your maximum heart rate, there's this sweet spot between your maximum heart rate and your resting heart rate called your target heart rate zone, which is between 50 and 85% of your maximum heart rate. So uh, given the the chart that the American Heart Association gives is if you're 20 years old, your maximum heartbeat is 200 beats per minute. Your target heart rate zone is about anywhere from 100 to 170 beats per minute, with 100 being kind of the low end. Maybe you're doing a jog and 170 is the high end. Say you're doing like weightlifting or burpees or you've just been running, you know, you're running a marathon or something like that. Um, so the Apple Watch works very similarly, where when, th- when it measures your heart rate, um, and it knows, of course, your age and weight, because you've put it into the iPhone when you first set up the Apple Watch, um, it will target your personalized heart rate zone. Um, so when it looks at your heartbeat, as you're, say, doing this at outdoor walk, it says, oh, you know, you're doing an outdoor walk, sure, but you're doing an outdoor walk and you're not really going very fast. Maybe you're stopping to, like, pet some dogs. Maybe it's on the flat. Um, and maybe you're normally a marathon runner. So your target heart rate zone, maybe your your heart just doesn't get doesn't beat very fast for like that low level walking uh whereas let's say my hypothetical wife uh who doesn't play roller derby four days a week uh they you know getting out of the house to walk that might be the only exercise they get all week so when they're doing something uh like a slow outdoor walk that is significantly harder for them um and their heart rate will jump up much faster than say mine who as somebody who works out you know four days a week and cross trains and all of that, um, it takes a little bit more effort to get my heart rate up. Uh, So in a nutshell, uh, the way that the Apple Watch figures out, you know, oh, you get 20 minutes of exercise and you get 45 minutes of exercise for a 50 minute walk is it's how hard is your body pushing itself to do this task? And is your body pushing itself hard enough to get yourself in that target heart rate? Because unless you're getting in that target heart rate, you're not going to be burning calories and you're not actually going to be exercising. You're just basically moving your body. Okay. I remember when the the watch first came out, uh, you had an article about how 
tattoos may interfere with this because, like you said, these lights have to be able to sense what's going on under your skin. It's not just the Apple Watch. This is how my wife has a Fitbit and uh, that does heart rate tracking. These all work basically the same way, you know, the same sort of um, same sort of idea. But tattoos and other things may uh, may interfere with this. So you know, uh, maybe check that out. But yeah, it's it's really fascinating how this works because on the surface it seems so simple, right? It's going to use really bright LEDs and we're going to see how much blood is in there, but there's all this science that goes into it. And, and, uh, it's really, I, I really enjoy the sort of, uh, being able to quantify what my body is doing through, through the watch and through other things. Like, um, just this morning I was at the gym and the, the treadmills have like a uh, palm rest. And if you put your palms on oh, them, yeah. it, it does your heart rate and they're not using lights. They're using something else. But I noticed on it, because I was wearing my Apple Watch and it was in workout mode so I could see my heart rate, that the the gym equipment sort of – the heart rate sort of jumped around, but the watch was real steady. And I felt like I trusted the watch more knowing how it worked and and, and all the, the science and research that's gone into this. So I think it's super cool how, how all this stuff works. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is really cool. Stanford did a study pretty recently, which we'll link in the in the show notes, that essentially says that, you know, there's still a, there are still margins of error in all of these. It's obviously not it's not as perfect as the gold standard, which is a, a you know, an EKG, basically chest strap monitor. Um, but it is close enough that it topped all of the studies for heart rate caloric uh balance that's a little bit different uh that the estimate that you get when you're doing a workout that's like you've burned x calories uh that's really hard for everybody to do because it's essentially taking that heart rate number and then multiplying it by your age and your weight and how often you work out and what kind of workout you're doing um so that's that's less trustworthy if you're if you're looking at a you know just I want to track my my health data right now, uh, but it's something that you know Apple's clearly aware of and and working on and certainly the other companies are working on as well. So it's it's really exciting to see all of this science going into basically making us healthier people, Stephen. Uh, I'm all for it. Yeah. If you've got questions, you can submit them on Twitter. Use the hashtag AskQuery, and we'll be sure to see it. I take questions on all sorts of topics, um, and while you're there, you can follow the show at Query Show for updates. So the second question, we sort of have a theme this week of like how things work, uh, which I enjoy. <laughs> uh, so Keeplin, hopefully I got that right, asks, how do multi-touch screens work? And so there's, uh, d- I dive into this a little bit, there's sort of two types of touch screens. Uh, there's resistive and capacitive. So resistive screens... I have one in my car. If you had like an old Palm Pilot with a little plastic stylus, you had one of these where you have to put pressure on the screen. And basically that pressure sort of squishes together layers of the screen to make contact. So if you have that plastic stylus and you press down, it knows where you press down based on the pressure of those things uh, touching. These generally are not nearly as responsive as as more modern touchscreens. They're only single uh, point of like of input. So capacitive with multi-touch um, can see multiple touch events at once. So it makes things like gestures possible. Resistive is very, very simple. Um, but it's still a place in this world. Like I said, the one, the screen in my car is resistive and it's actually pretty good. Like it, I don't have any lag or anything with it. It gets the job done. But capacitive is different. It is dependent on something that holds 
and electric charge, including human skin, because really at the end of the day, we're just meat bags of water. Uh, just when we get down swish, to it. Swish, swish. Yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, so when you touch it with your finger, there is a small uh, electrical charge and it can track that. So if you have gloves on, for instance, you can't interact with your iPhone screen, but then there's touch gloves that, that allow that interaction to happen. Um, this, this is why you can like unlock your phone with your elbow or like with your knuckle if your fingers are dirty. It just has to touch human skin. These are much more modern. It's what all of our phones and tablets are. It's what if you have a if you have a, a two in one PC. That's what the, those screens are as well. Uh, but multi touch sort of sits on top of that. So it's it's capacitive capture, but with multiple points. And years ago, Apple bought a company called Fingerworks that helped develop some of this. And because it can detect multiple points and can, and can keep tabs on those touch points, things like swipes and pinch to zoom uh, and all these gestures are possible because it can it can track multiple places uh, on the screen at once. So much more modern, but really it's just looking for that, that electrical charge to be generated when the uh, when your finger makes contact with it. Yeah, it's very cool. And it's also the reason, uh, I can't help but insert a stylus mention here, Um, it's the reason why for a long time the iPad had those really ridiculous looking styluses that basically were fat rubber nibs that looked Mm -hmm. like they were tiny pinky fingers. Because for a long time, the iPad would only sense an electrical impulse from from an input that was larger than six millimeters. So... Essentially, what stylus manufacturers had to do was make styluses that were six to nine millimeters in diameter um, that had a rubber capacitive nib that would basically allow whenever you touched the stylus to give an electric charge down to the iPad so you could use it accordingly. Um, and then, of course, the um, the Apple Pencil works a little bit differently, as do some of the more modern styluses in that they use Bluetooth with but they also have a capacitive angle that again makes little electric electric impulses uh usually via a battery um or some other power source in the stylus to make the sty- uh, the screen recognize what it's doing it's very very cool again science it's really fa- really fascinating how apple has made all of this work yeah the pencil you know if you just look at it kind of looks like an old resistive stylus that you may have had in a palm pilot but when you get into it what it's actually doing and using touch and bluetooth and all this proximity stuff to give the device a more complete picture of what's going on that's that's really where it excels over things we had even just a few years ago yeah and um and you mentioned the fact that multi-touch you know is a big aspect of a lot of capacitive screens but really it can't it's not even possible on a resistive touchscreen because the resistive touchscreen needs like that pressure in one spot. Capacitive, because it can sense electrical impulses, it also means that it can sense when not to recognize electrical impulses. And that's how things like uh, palm rejection work, for instance, or um, miscellaneous touches, knowing that if you have three, three fingers on the screen and you move up, uh, it's going to do a different thing than if you have two fingers on the screen and move up. It's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that brings us to this week's speed run. Do, 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 speed run. Uh, Nathan is moving to a new phone number with their next iPhone, um, which made me realize I've had the same phone number forever. Like my first phone in high school was the same number I have now. Uh, I just, mm-hmm. that popped in my head as I was reading this. Like, oh, yeah, I've never done that. Uh, 
But the, and this was posed as a, as a theoretical, but it doesn't seem very theoretical. Uh, if you have lost track of all the services you use with two-factor authentication, is there an easy way to uh, round them up and to locate them? Boy, well, I will say, if you've put them all in, you know, and their various uh, authentication aspects uh, in something like Authy or One Password then that allows you a pretty quick way to, to check all of that together, right? Um, but there's really no, there's no like button that you can press that's like, show me all of my two-factor authentication. Uh, show me all the things that this phone number is used. Because if there was, it would probably be hacked and then, you know, bad things would happen. Uh, so no, there's not. However, there is a, a roundabout way of doing this. Uh, which there's a website called twofactorauth.com, A-U-T-H, that we'll link in the show notes, and that lists every single kind of two-factor and two-step authentication out available on the web. So you can search uh, in various categories, like mail, for instance, and hopefully find the ones that you, you know, you think you might have two-factor authentication with, and then that way you can preemptively change your number. Okay. So yeah, so it's um, it's it's probably going to be a little bit of work, Nathan. Um, one thing I thought of is just like, just sit down and like think through all of your workflows and the services you use on a regular basis. Uh, and I would get started because once you lose access to that old phone number, this could become more difficult. So, um, best of luck. We'll be thinking about you. All right. Next question. Nick asks if you have repeating calendar events with alerts on. How do you disable these notifications when you're on vacation? Uh, so it's pr- actually pretty straightforward. If your like life calendar and work calendar are separate, which mine are, uh, I would recommend that if you don't do that, by the way, just having a work calendar you can just turn off on the weekends is really nice. So any calendar app that I tried for this on the Mac or on the iPhone, um, on Android, you can on a per calendar basis – disable notifications. So on the iOS calendar app, if you go into the calendar list, you can just say ignore notifications. And you could do that. So the calendar is still on. You're still, you can still see the calendar, but you're not getting the, those notifications all the time. And uh, just go in there and turn them off. And when you're back at work, turn it back on. And uh, it should be pretty straightforward. If they are intermixed with other events, um, that's going to be more difficult. You could go in there and edit the individual calendar events if there's not that many of them, but um, maybe it's a good opportunity to separate things out a little bit. I, I like I like sort of having work and personal events uh, separate. Yeah, agreed. And I also recommend doing something uh, like turning on Do Not Disturb. You know, you're on vacation. You don't really need to see text messages and emails and the like. Um, on that note, though, if you do use Google Calendar uh, for your repeating calendar events and you have alerts, say, email-based alerts, uh, make sure that you check those uh, before you go off on vacation. Because uh, I, I recently went to England and I discovered, actually, uh, for our podcast even, uh, I get something like five email notifications from Google <laughs> because we have... The official query uh, notif- or, uh, alert, and then we also have, I have a personal one in my personal calendar, and oh man, so I had like 10, 10 emails that were just all, you have a podcast with Stephen Hackett in five minutes. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so remember to check that, remember to check your non-device alerts. 
That's, uh, that's good advice. I, I always forget about those. I haven't turned off, but I know a lot of people depend on them. Griffin asks, when using Apple Map directions, I want to see the route on the CarPlay screen and not hear Siri, but every time I change the setting, it seems to turn itself back on. And I know you've spent uh, a lot of time on this sort of thing, so, so what should Griffin look for? Oh, boy. Well, Griffin, I'm so sad to hear that you don't like Siri. She just wants to be your friend. No, <laughs> I understand. Voice directions can be very irritating, especially when you have other people in the car or you're listening to music or the like. Um, it is strange that Siri keeps on turning off after uh, after you turn it or sorry, it keeps on turning on after you turn it off. Um, it might be a intermix with the car's firmware, and that's something I definitely recommend maybe reaching out to Apple support for just to check. Uh, in the meantime, though, there are ways to keep that from, from happening. However, uh, it might result in turning the entirety of CarPlay off. Um, there is a settings under general and restrictions uh, that can turn CarPlay audio off, but it may, because I don't have a CarPlay car, I wasn't able to test it uh, to see if that also turns off CarPlay video. Uh, and if it does, obviously, not quite the the goal you're, you're going for. Um, so if you keep on having issues with Siri's voice popping back on even after you've turned her off, um, and you can't press, of course, there's a there's a button on iOS and on CarPlay to, to mute. Um, and if neither of those are working, I would definitely give Apple support a call and see if it's a bug or if it's something that they can troubleshoot for you. So I think that brings us uh, to the end of episode seven. Yet another episode wrapped uh, full of science, full of interesting how stuff works. Uh, I'm I'm pretty excited now that I know mo- more about multi-touch and uh, refreshed my brain about some heart rate sensors. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, if you have uh, questions for us, you can uh, tweet with the hashtag AskQuery. Uh, you can find show notes for this week for all the stuff we talked about at relay.fm slash query slash seven. In the meantime, you can find Serenity on Twitter at Saturn, and you can find her writing at imore.com. I'm ISMH on Twitter and write512pixels.net. So until next time, Serenity, say goodbye. A bientôt. Adios.